So then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had, had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where, is, where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found, found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table with the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Yeah, man, that's cool. Hey, I want to tell you something. For everything, um, the music that you just heard, the voice, the graphic, all of that was produced in-house by our media department and our media team. Isn't that really cool? That's so cool, man. So, hey, listen, this is a good spot for an amen, and you can cheer right here, but we're starting a new series today. Right? This is awesome. We're starting a series entitled The Upper Room. So there's just a few things that I want you to know. Um, when you came in today, you got handed um, a really cool bookmark. And on the back of that bookmark, there's a Bible reading plan. So we are in um, what is called the Upper Room Discourse which is Jesus's last words to his disciples on the night that he is getting ready to be betrayed. And it's found in John chapter 13, and it goes from chapter 13 through chapter 17. What's really cool about that is if you break that down, you can read a chapter every day throughout your work week. So on Monday, John 13, Tuesday, John 14, and so on and so on. And so this is a great plan for you to be able to meditate and marinate in the word throughout the week and not just on Sundays. And let me tell you, if you do this, if you read these passages and soak yourself in them, I'm telling you, it changes your experience on Sundays. It's incredible. Secondly, we always want to celebrate when we start new series and especially books of the Bible. There's a number of reasons for that. Number one, we want your kids to have fun. We want your kids to associate Jesus and church as fun. We don't want you to have to drag your kids to church. We want to flip the script and your kids drag you to church, okay? And so when you leave today, we're giving out popcorn because we're popping into a new series and it's popping or kids say cool stuff like that. I don't know. So, but we've got popcorn out there in the lobby because we want to celebrate that we're starting this new series. And so maybe just by way of introduction to set us up, if you know anything Thing about me. I'm a fan of history. I love history. I especially love um, American history and, and learning about our heritage. And I love learning about little moments that you never knew anything about that had such massive impacts. But if you could ask me and say, hey, Pastor Jason, if you could go back anywhere in American history and live and watch the event firsthand, where would you go and, and what would be the time? What would you want to witness? And I think there's a number of things, man. I mean, think about it. There is so much rich history. But the date, I think, would definitely be August 2nd, 1776. And August 2nd, 1776 is when the founding fathers actually signed 
the Declaration of Independence. Um, they wrote it up and declared it. Some say July 2nd. We celebrate it July 4th. At the end of the day, it's America's birthday. And that's with an M, not an A, okay, right? But this moment is so incredible. It is a very, very famous painting. And when you think about it, the, I mean, the founding fathers were incredible. Did you know that, that Thomas Jefferson, draft, listen to this, drafted the Declaration of Independence on a scrap piece of paper in his room during his spare time. Just like, I'm just going to go up to my room and draft the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it's unbelievable. But the day that the founding fathers signed that Declaration of Independence is a day that forever lives on in history. If you know your history, um, who was the first person to sign it? Who was it? John Hancock, right? That's why I put your Hancock right here and sign on the dotted line. History records that if you look at the document, John Hancock's signature is like three times the size of everyone else's. Because when he signed it, he said that he didn't want to have to have the queen to take off her glasses to see his signature. That's a gangster. That's a gangster move right there, man. That's really cool. But also, when these men signed these documents... They literally put their life on the line. You see, it was sort of an American revolution. That's what was taking place. And this nation was being birthed. But when they signed their names, it was official. There was a paper trail. One of my favorite historians, David McCullough, says this, anyone who signed his name to the Declaration of Independence was putting his head in a noose. He was declaring on paper with his own signature that he was a traitor. If caught, he would be hanged. If he was fortunate, he would only be hanged because the law said that he could be drawn and quartered in pieces. You see, when they pledged their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor, it wasn't just talk. It wasn't just rhetoric. This was the literal truth. Just a moment in a room with a group of people that think about this, that affected you today, right now, in Butler County. I mean, when you connect those dots and you think August 2nd, 1776, a group of people met in a room and that affects my life here today is a crazy statement. But it's also a great way to look at what happened in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples on the night that he was to be betrayed. We said that this is called the upper room discourse. Jesus knows that he is getting ready to be betrayed by a dear friend, Judas. He sold Jesus out for some pieces of silver. After this meal, they're going to walk down to a garden and Roman soldiers are going to come and take Jesus away. He will be illegally tried at night. He will be beaten, and the Bible says beyond human recognition. Then he will have to carry his crossbar down steps, and then he will have nails and spikes driven in his hands and in his feet. And then he dies as he suffocates to death for six hours on the cross. But what takes place in this room is so important to Christianity 
that I think we don't even realize and connect the dots. J.C. Ryle, a famous bishop, says it this way. This is what J.C. Ryle looked like. Wow, just that's a beard. Beards are biblical, and all the men said amen, right? J.C. Ryle says this. This upper room, we should remember, was the forerunner of every church and cathedral which has been reared in Christendom within the last 18 centuries, as he writes. St. Paul's of York and Lincoln and all the stately ministers of our own land. St. Sophia and Constantinople, St. Isaac, St. Petersburg, St. Stephen's and the Vienna, Notre Dame at Paris, St. Peter's at Rome. All of these are descendants from this small upper room. Not one can trace its pedigree and history beyond this little small room. This room was the cradle of the infant church of Jesus Christ and the beginning of all of our services. From this room, the waters of the everlasting gospel first begin to flow, which now have spread so widely throughout the world, however adulterated and corrupted they may be at times in some ages and in some parts of the earth. But I invite all Christians and all readers then to step into the upper room and examine its history. <laughs> that is a bold statement. I mean, think about it. What J.C. Ryle is saying is the reason why you were gathered in this church and other Christians are gathered in churches all across the world from Russia to Ukraine to the United States to Butler County all started in this upper room that night. One theologian says what Jesus says in the upper room is called Jesus's discipleship course, if you will. You see, he's getting ready to leave, and so he is passing on all of his teachings, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. He is leaving it in the hands of 12 followers. <laughs> I mean, think about this. He is entrusting everything to these followers. One of them is getting ready to betray him. One of them is hours away from denying that they even know him to a little bitty girl. Peter's hanging out by a fire following Jesus, and this little girl's like, hey, you're Peter, you follow Jesus. And he's like, I don't know Jesus. Denies Jesus three times. But think about it. The men that he entrusted the gospel to in that room were faithful to carry it. That now we assemble here today to study the writings. It's unbelievable. We always start with a little bit of context whenever we start a series. And so we said that the text is found in John's gospel. Um, John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And what we are going to do all the way up to Advent, we are spending our time in the upper room discourse. Listen, we're going word by word, phrase by phrase, line by line, and busting this thing down like Legos. And we are spending time looking at what Jesus taught those disciples. And what's interesting about John's gospel is that John devotes over half of his gospel to the last week of Jesus's life. 
Think about this. Starting in John chapter 12, everything that happens is only about seven days. That's how important the last week of Jesus' life is. And then in those chapters, John thought it so significant that he records these five chapters, which is predominantly all in red in your Bible. It's Jesus' words in those final chapters. Um, if the Bible devotes that much time to something, God's trying to tell us something. This is really important. You need to pin this on your Instagram. This needs to be at the top of your feed. This is significant, okay? But now I know what you're saying. You're like, we're, you said we're going to be studying John's gospel, but we just read out of Luke's gospel. Like, what's going on here? Well, we need to get some context and understand just before we jump in. So at Westside, if it's your first time here, there's something that, there's two things we really, really love at Westside. The first one's Jesus. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> at Westside, we really love Jesus. Yeah. Woo, my goodness gracious. I thought when none of us were saved for a minute or like, you know. And then secondly, um, secondly, um, if you've got a Bible, just hold it up. Could you? Could you hold it up? If you have a fake Bible on your phone, we'll let that slide. That's okay, right? Hold that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We love God's Word here at Westside. And listen, we love the Word of God because it points us to the Son of God. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. But the Bible, think about this, God wrote a book. God wrote a book. And we love the Word of God because it points us to the Son of God. And so we have to spend time. We have to treat this as Paul tells Timothy. We have to rightly divide the Word of God. So we need to get the backstory of going into John's Gospel. And, and the verses that were read to you are very particular. It tells about how everything is getting ready to take place. And Jesus made some very serious dinner reservations, right? He's like going to a room or into the town. This guy's carrying water. And basically you need to tell him like, it's almost like a scene from The Godfather. It's like this guy's carrying water and a guy comes up and is like, Michael Corleone, he needs your room, right? Like it's a favor for the family, you know? And so he gets the room and, and it's the Passover meal, which is huge in Jewish culture. This is when God, they celebrate when God took the people out of being slaves in Egypt and, and, and the Passover. We're going to learn about all of that. But there's, there's really two things in these verses that I want to map us out today that'll sort of be like our Google Maps, okay? I want to focus on really two questions. Who's in the room and who's not in the room? I mean, this is a big deal. This is, this is Jesus giving the ministry to these followers, and, and just like we talked about the Declaration of Independence and who signed that, and that affects our lives today, who is in the room is so significant. And also who's not in the room is very significant as well. And so we're going to look at those two questions. So the first thing is this, who is in the room? Well, it tells us right there in verse 14. Did you see it? And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and... What's the word? The apostles with him. That's an interesting word, right? It's not a word that we use all the time every day, the apostles. And these guys are very much so distinguished 
from the rest of the followers of Jesus Christ. Um, For the two of you who care, the original word in the original language is apostolos, right? And it means the sent ones is really what it means. And, And we actually know by name who these apostles are. Because we see a moment in another gospel where Jesus calls these apostles to himself. And so check it out and look at these names. It's found in Matthew chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples. This is really cool. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. This is some wicked power, man, right? Like, I think about it. Did they, like, let's be honest. He calls the disciples to himself. And do you think that they were like messing around and like zapped a bird in a tree or something? They were like, dude, Jesus gave me powers. This is incredible. So they're healing afflictions. And then here it is. The names of the 12 of the apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. You need to know this. This is really cool. Um, In history, and especially in the Bible, the way that they record names is really significant. So when they mention the, the apostles and the disciples, Peter is always mentioned first. He's always mentioned first out of a place of honor. And, and then when you read Peter's life, you're like, man, how did that guy get a seat at the table? Well, by God's grace, amen, right? Peter's always listed first, and Judas is always listed last um, because of the betrayal and you know what's interesting? Like, we got a baby dedication coming up. I've dedicated a lot of babies in my day with, with, with a lot of unique names and stuff like that. I have never dedicated no Judas. <laughs> nope. Never seen a mom and dad be like, you know, I think Judas is really the name, right? Tribe of Judah, all of that is great. But Judas, my goodness gracious, right? So it's Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, then the list continues, and John, his brother. James and John were called the Sons of Thunder. That's a really good band name, by the way, all right? Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. And I'm going to say Judas, and I want you to go dun-dun-dun. Okay, you ready? Here we go. And Judas... Iscariot who betrayed him. A couple things. Um, When you look at the list of these disciples, it said Matthew the tax collector and then Simon the zealot. Do you understand the political affiliation there? Matthew the tax collector sold out to Rome. So he was kind of in bed with the government. And then Simon the Zealot was an anti-government, like anarchy. All I mean, this is like somebody from Hillary Clinton's campaign and Donald Trump's campaign being best friends together. I mean, this is crazy to see the socioeconomic background. But the beautiful thing is that they all have Jesus in common, which tells me this. We have far more in common than we do apart from each other. Do not believe the lie of the discord and the division and all of those things. But we see these apostles were the ones that Jesus called to himself. But I want to do something here. I want to to grab the whiteboard and I want to show you something. There's not just these 12 apostles, 
Um, when we survey Jesus' ministry, we actually see a number of groups of people that follow with Jesus. So think about it. When Jesus rolled into town, there were thousands of people that met him. Massive, massive crowds. And so the first sort of circle and sphere that you can say, that's not a bad circle, man, you know, um, you can call the crowds. I mean, just thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 with the kids lunchable? And like, I mean, that was just, they just counted the men and the children. I mean, it's unbelievable sometimes the crowds. Thousands of people. But then we get a drastically smaller number of followers that follow Jesus. Um, in the scriptures, there's also mentioned what's called basically the 170. And, and, and the 170 are like a Mary Magdalene and the group of women that followed Jesus. It is a large group. I mean, think about that. Back then, towns and villages were almost 150, 170 people. So, so you go from this massive crowd of thousands and thousands, but then we see Jesus has about 170. But then the 170 even get a little bit smaller and on the day of Pentecost, we see, by, by the way, who's also back in the upper room. This upper room where Jesus met with his disciples, um, whenever Jesus um, dies and the Roman government's coming after them, they scatter and they all run back up to the upper room. But it records that on the day of Pentecost, there were about 120 that were there. So now we start seeing this get a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller, and a little bit smaller. Then... After the 120, we get what's called the 72. We see that Jesus calls the 72, and then he sends them out two by two, and they go into towns, and they do ministry, and they travel around like circuit evangelists, and they do all of those things. But then we see in the upper room the 12. And then even in the 12, there's a couple moments where Jesus calls his BFFs, his rider dies, as I like to call it. We have Peter, James, and John. And so we have even three that are really at the core. Do you know what's interesting? When you look at Jesus' ministry... I think a lot of us today would be so satisfied with the first ring, the masses of people. But Jesus is constantly moving away from the masses and investing in smaller groups of people. And when you think about it, it's almost puzzling because if, if you were to look at this almost like a funnel. It's almost like Jesus' ministry and his discipleship gets smaller. I mean, you've got crowds, and it just keeps going and keeps going, and it gets smaller. And you think, Jesus, I mean, why, why would you do that? Because look at the influence that you have. But what's interesting about the gospel is the gospel is not about 
addition or subtraction. That's not the mathematics of the kingdom of God. The mathematics of the kingdom of God is multiplication. When you look at it this way, it looks like it gets smaller. But when you flip the funnel, the three, the 12, it expands and it expands and it expands and it expands and it gets bigger and it gets bigger. The reason why I show you this is because oftentimes I think that our number one priority in ministry when it comes to doing what Jesus is and does is influence. I mean, today, that's a, you can even be an influencer, right? And get paid off TikTok and all of this type of stuff. But here's something, a sentence that I want you to jot down. Jesus would rather have a few disciples and make an impact than take the masses and have influence. You know why? Influence is all about drawing people to you and getting people to do your thing and all of that. What an impact is, is empowering people to go out from you. Jesus is getting ready to leave. And what he's doing is, is he is equipping these disciples to be in the room. So here's some really important language that we're getting ready to drop on you. And it's this. The 12 disciples that were in the room are upper room disciples. Upper room. Well, that's interesting. So, okay, we know who's in the room. We've laid the groundwork for that, right? Now we ask this question. Who's not in the room? Who's not in the room? Well, look at the verse again. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy when you think about it, that it was the apostles were with him, not the 72, not the 120 who's there at Pentecost. There is something significant about these 12 that are in the room with Jesus. And listen, this is going to be the entire groundwork of the series. I want you to think about this upper room like a house. You've got the room here. You've got a room here. And let's do... Don't think that roof is up to code, buddy. Okay, right? When we see those circles getting smaller, we see a moment like in John 6. Jesus is doing these miracles and he's feeding the masses. And it says that there were a ton of crowds that were following him, but Jesus almost gets agitated in his spirit. And he turns to the crowds and he gives what I call the pew clearer sermon. And he basically says, oh, yeah, you want to be my follower? Well, then you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. No free lunch today. And like everybody turns away and leaves. I mean, do you understand what Jesus just did in that moment? Like, I mean, churches would die. They would fire their pastor. Like, what in the world? Everybody is leaving. And Jesus, listen to this, turns to the disciples and says, are you going to go? Here's your moment. Everybody's leaving. And Simon Peter speaks up and says this, where would we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. Okay, there's something different here. The disciples, the 12, are bought into something different 
than the masses and those other group of people. When, when you survey why people join churches and want to be a part of things and do stuff like that, it's really based, um, well, there's a word, and it's called provision. Think about provide. When you think about being a part of a church, you sort of sit and ask the question, what is here that can be provided for me, essentially? And there's a number of things, but all the tests and all the surveys sort of come back. There's a number of things like um, the people. I really love those people. There are people that are there that are close to my age. Um, we hang out. I'm connected. I know those people. There's people, and then there is, um, you know, programs. There's incredible things to get involved in, you know, to do all of that type of stuff. Or what's really, really significant, um, how about places? Like a church building, sort of the tradition of something like that. Um, there's also maybe what you could call a personality whether it be the preaching, whether it be the leadership, whether it be anything like that. That's, that's why I want to be a part of this because I see what is provided for me for provision. But the reality is, is if that is what attracts you, it's really odd. What attracts you most of the time to a church becomes the very thing that distracts you of being a part of the church. Because what you win someone with, you win them to. And the moment that stops being provided, like in John chapter 6, no more free lunches, people leave. But we see something different with the 12. Um, to use just a crude illustration of some stairs... The disciples, and by the way, these things are not bad things. Jesus had these things in his ministry to provide for the masses, to preach, to do all of that stuff. Those are good things. But listen to me, they're not God things. What goes on in the lower room is not the mission and the vision of the church. So what is discipleship? What is the difference between the lower room people and the upper room people? Well, it's not provision. It's not what can be provided for me. It's this. What can I be a part of? What can I help build? You know what's interesting? Um, I get questions all the time from other pastors, older pastors, who maybe don't have um, younger people in their congregation. And so it's like, how do you get younger people to come, do all this stuff? And it's just, sometimes the questions are very sad. But do you know why a majority of people my generation and lower don't attend church? Because they don't see anything that they can be a part of building. When you give someone a seat at the table and you give them a responsibility, when they see the vision and that they can be a part of that vision, what happens is discipleship and we start moving up these stairs from a lower room to an upper room. So listen, here's what we're going to do in this series over these next couple of weeks. I believe through these chapters in John 13 and John 17, Jesus lays out 10 marks 
of a disciple. Or we could say it this way, 10 sort of stairs, if you will, that take you, because if this is your relationship with Jesus, and if this is your relationship with the church, it's a glass ceiling, man. It'll be frustrated, and then maybe about every decade, every decade and a half, there's a rotation, there's a bouncing to a new community, there's all of that. But when we understand that the 12 believed the vision and were bought into the vision, well, we have to ask this question. What was the vision, really? And the vision was to go into all the world and to make disciples. But do you know what I'm interested about in this series for us at Westside? Is I'm interested about what Westside's unique vision is in this time, in this place, in this moment in history in Butler County. We have the grand vision to make disciples, yes, But what does that look like for us, flesh and blood, in the here and in the now? And this is some language you're going to be hearing a lot of. But I really feel that God is calling us to this. Westside's purpose is very simply this, is that we want to invite people who are familiar with Jesus to follow Jesus with our family. Now, you need to think about every one of those words. Why does it say we want to invite people who are familiar with Jesus? Oh my. You drove around Butler County recently? We got a Dollar General Mexican restaurant, car dealership, and churches. Praise God for the churches. That's incredible. But there's something I've noticed for living here well over a decade. It's that everybody's familiar with Jesus. Oh, yeah, my gra- oh, yeah, we did the, oh, yeah, the, um, oh, man, sure, you know, Christmas, Easter, CEO, Christmas and Easter only, all of that stuff. And there's a familiarity with Jesus. And then there's almost this self-justification that because my grandmother was a member of a church or because this or because there was a moment when I was seven that I love Jesus and I'm now a follower of Jesus, but there is no fruit and evidence of going up those stairs from a lower room into an upper room. And so what we want to do is we want to be very clear in the gospel and who Jesus is and invite people who are familiar with him to now become followers of him. What does it look like and how could your life change if you understood the 12 that were in that upper room were no more qualified than you are? They were ordinary disciples and ordinary men and women. And what God is looking for now is people who are not satisfied with the lower room but rather desire to walk up the stairs into the upper room because they believe that Jesus Christ really lived and he lived a perfect life and it was sinless. And Jesus Christ really died and he bore my death and my sin upon that cross. Not some general sin, but my specific sin. That when Jesus looked through the corridor of time, when he was crucified on that cross, that he saw Jason Jordan and that he was paying for the sins of Jason Jordan and three days later that dude rose from the dead and is alive right now. Jesus is alive today. 
now. Guys, the gospel message works. It works. All we have to do is get out of the way. We've made it so complicated. And what we've done is the church is really frustrated with itself. Because we thought these lower room things were the things that really mattered. And decade after decade, there's statistics, there's all of this. And the reality is, the point of Westside is to point to Jesus. And to make disciples, but not just disciples. Oh, now we're in it. Now it's like deep waters. It's not just disciples, but it's disciples who make disciples. It's not just making disciples and people that know Bible knowledge and this, that, and the other and could do a sword drill and find the book of Zephaniah faster than you, okay? But it's people who are equipped with the gospel of Jesus Christ and live life with other people, one, two, three other people who then equip them to live life with other people and to shepherd and to do this. So when we talk about all of this and the vision of where we're going, we have to understand something. You can't know where you're going until you know where you are at now, right now. So uh, I want to look at this sort of discipleship triangle in closing. And everybody in the room is going to be somewhere on this. And this has been all of our journey at some point. But it starts with being distracted. You're, you're, not, you're not interested in the gospel, Jesus, any of that stuff. Like you have your life, you have your plans, you have all of that. It's just kind of meh. Like, yeah, maybe there was a God that created the universe, Mount Everest. That's cool. Like all of that stuff. But that, it's not like, I don't know, man. You know, I'm just, I'm distracted from that. Then you move from distracted to attracted. Then it's like, Man, my, my coworker was like praying for me and there's some things going on in my life and, and I, I don't even know anything about God, but maybe God's doing something in my, that even sounds crazy for me to say and I'm asking my Christian friends about stuff and all of this. And, and, and listen, if, if you're in those two categories here today, you got to understand something. You are so welcome here at Westside. Oh, man, if you're peeking over the fence and you're like, what's this about? You guys say that you eat Jesus's body? Like, isn't that cannibalism? Like, all that. listen, we, we want to answer those questions. We want to walk life with you. Please, dear God, don't get your Christianity from Google. Oh, goodness gracious, okay? Right? So if you're here, we value your presence. We value your questions, right? Then there's a moment where you go from attracted to believing, um, the, the Bible actually gives us um, a prescription for this. And, 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 and the way that you understand that and that outward expression of the inward confession of Jesus Christ is passing through the waters of baptism, right? It's, it's understanding like there's a moment where you confess, dude, I am a sinner. I've been trying to live my life my way. I'm exhausted. I've been kind of attracted to this and boom, God has got a hold of me. I have felt the presence of God. Maybe you were nine. Maybe you were 19. Maybe you were 79 years old. Praise be to God. It doesn't matter what that number is. But the Bible says that we pass through the waters of baptism, we confess what God has done in our heart, and then we move to being discipled. 
Like, like I got to learn my Bible. What's the connection class? What is this type of stuff? What is, okay, so I handle my money differently? Like, okay, why do I do that? You understand now that Jesus is king and he rules and reigns every area of your life relationships, money, all of the way I speak, all of that stuff. And you start learning the words of Jesus and the ways of Jesus. And then we move to being a disciple maker. Then it's like, hey, hasn't God done incredible stuff in your life? And you're like, oh my goodness, it's unbelievable. Great. Now go find someone who was like you and do the same thing that Bill did with you. And you're like, but isn't there a committee for that? Does someone need to make a motion for that? Can anybody second that motion right now? Like, no, right? It's called living your life with intentional purpose. It's understanding when you become a disciple maker, you understand how slow and messy the process really is. It's difficult. It's hard. There's no like, oh, arrival. There's none of that, right? You're just living life. And then, upper room, is now I need to go and reproduce myself. Just one person and do that. Can I, can I show you something? The church, for a number of years, bought into a revivalist mindset and said that the goal stopped here. Now, you got to understand something. We love Jesus around here, and we go nuts at baptisms, and I do have an agenda. If you don't love Jesus and don't follow Jesus, you're like, preachers always have an agenda. You're right, I do, buddy. I want you to meet Jesus, get saved, get dunked, and the whole deal, okay? Because we love you, and we really believe that the love of Jesus Christ can change your life. But listen, that's the beginning. (gasps) That is not the end. That's where the journey begins in that moment. And what does it look like? I mean, let's get very practical. What does it look like to go from even me preaching and teaching to training? Goodness gracious, the last thing we need is more information. You have a device in your pocket that can give you any information at any moment right now. And it's just like we got this Bible, big Bible head of knowledge going around, right? But what does it look like to live that in our life? To really love other people, to be generous with our money, to forgive people who have wounded us and they don't even deserve it. What does it look like to live that way? So in closing, as the band comes and leads us in response, I have a question when you look at this. Where are you? Where are you? No, no, no. Not where you want to be. Not like, where are you now in this journey with Jesus? And then the second question is this. When you think about the church, the big church, the big mission of Jesus, do you think of only lower room things? Is that what the conversation consists of? Because where your treasure is, is where your heart is. And those things will be revealed. But I'm asking you, where are you at? And then secondly, what is the Spirit of God saying to you through the Word of God to take your next step? Maybe for some of you, it's going to be baptism. We'll be having a baptism class coming up. 
We've got a number of things. West Side, man, we've got all this stuff. Okay, we've got all this stuff. That doesn't matter. What matters is, are you walking and taking the step of obedience that Jesus is calling you to? Is it to be generous? Is it to forgive? What is that? Because let me tell you something. The moment you step out in faith, the moment you step out in faith that you have no idea how this is going to come together, that is where Jesus wants you to be. That is where the upper room begins. Father God, we come before you today grateful for your word. It is unbelievable to sit here and think this moment in the upper room with these 12 disciples have affected why we are even here now today. The gospel works. Jesus, you're alive. Like when we pray, when we sing, we don't sing to a dead God. We sing to the ever-loving, ever-living ruler of the universe who hears the prayers and praise of his people. And God, my prayer is that Westside in Popper Bluff, Missouri would become an upper room church and that we would take the step of faith and obedience to go up this staircase. Sure, lower room things are important and we're gonna do all that stuff. But at the end of the day, Jesus, you have a mission that really can change the world. God, right now, I feel very led by the Spirit to just pray and to prophesy that people that step out in faith and leadership are going to help people heal their marriage. God, I believe that people who are struggling now, seeking help in their marriage, are going to sit down with another couple whose marriage is in shambles and a marriage is going to be saved. God, I pray for the family that dealt with the prodigal child for all those years and they've wondered why about all that suffering and then there's going to be a text message that says, hey, can I meet with you to talk about my daughter or about my son? And in that moment, they're going to see the staircase and they're going to go, yes, God is calling me into the upper room to invest in someone else. God, there's going to be someone who's just recently a believer who has tons of unsaved, distracted friends who are going to risk a relationship and say, you know, I haven't been hanging around much and I still love you, but I want you to know and I know it's going to sound crazy. Man, I just feel like God's changed my life, man. And I love you so much and we've spent so much time together. And I've got to tell you what Jesus has done. God, I believe it's coming. I see it. God, give up the balls in our court. You are willing and able to do far more than we could ask or think. The prayers that we pray that we think are risky, God, you want us to pray bolder, bigger prayers than that. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you have your way with us today. You show us the staircase. You put the ball in our court. Give us the faith to step out. We pray this all in the holy and in the risen and in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.